Tonight, we're continuing a series that we started a couple weeks ago called The Immediate Jesus. And, and uh, we've been talking about the ministry, the life and the ministry, and the person of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we talked about the public ministry of Jesus, if you remember. We looked at his preaching ministry, we, we looked at his calling ministry, and we looked at his miraculous ministry. Well, tonight, we're going we're gonna to take a little bit different tack and we're going to deal with Jesus's private personality. And I'm, I'm going to be very brief and very straight to the point tonight, but I, I just want to deal with several facets of Jesus's private personality. So if you have your Bible and you want to uh, open up to, to uh, read where we're going to be tonight, where we're starting anyway, Mark 1.45 is where we're going to begin. And in Mark 1.45, you see, you'll see one of the problems that Jesus encountered throughout his three years of ministry, and that was that the, the popularity, his, his celebrity, if you will, but the popularity of his public ministry that we talked about last week often intruded into his private world, so much so that, that it, it, he had this constant struggle in his own life to find moments of privacy, to get alone. So look what it says in Mark 1.45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. He's talking about this is after he did some great miracle and, and, and to spread the news so that Jesus could, could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So if he walked right straight into some city somewhere, it would just cause a tumult, a riot almost. And, and so he had to stay out in these desolate, lonely places and, and even then... The multitudes flocked out to where he was. And so uh, he was constantly being surrounded by people. And, and so finding a moment of privacy was a big deal. It was a very difficult thing for him. And it, if we could have interviewed those people who knew Jesus in, in an immediate way, those who had private experiences of Jesus's personality, I'm talking about over and above the people who saw him, as it were, from the back of the crowd or observed him from a distance healing somebody. But I wonder if we interviewed, say, 10 of them, for example, if, if we wouldn't come away thinking that Jesus was, was somebody with a split personality, with multiple personalities. And you'll, you'll, you'll understand what I mean by that in a few moments. But at different points in his personal encounters with people, some of the deep, rich variations on his personality were explored in very real ways, so, so that one person who saw Jesus up close and personal may have seen one aspect of Jesus and one part of one aspect of how who he was and what he was like, and 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 and, and so they walk away from that encounter thinking they knew who Jesus was, and then another person might come away from a similar encounter saying that no, he's not like that at all. He's like this and. It's, uh, it's sort of like the story, you remember the story of the blind men who uh, tried to describe an elephant? Anybody remember that story? You ever heard that story? It's, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but basically you have these blind men who go up and they start uh, trying to determine what an elephant looks like and what an elephant is like. And so they go up and they start feeling. Well, one blind man grabs the elephant's leg and he says, oh, well, this, this elephant elephant looks like a tree. That's what an elephant's like. But then another blind man grabbed his tail and said, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. An elephant 
It's a lot more like a snake, more like a serpent. And, and so, you know, and on and on the story goes. I'm not going to get into all of that. But, but the, the end of the story, that these blind men were not able to piece together a composite portrait of the elephant because each one of them felt that his personal experience of the immediate elephant was the entire reality of that elephant. And, 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 and in the first place, I think that that's the way it is with all of us. There's some element of that in all of our lives because there are aspects of your personality that your spouse knows that nobody else knows. And there are aspects of your personality that your children know that nobody else knows. And workmates know aspects of your, of your personality that other people don't know. However, none of them actually provides a complete portrait of your personality. By the same token, I would... I would also say that the, the greater the personality, the truer this is. One might think that really great personalities, you know, would have the tendency to just be the same all the time. But now, now Jesus is the same in his spiritual presence. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, the, 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 what, I'm, what I want to say is that the greater the personality, the richer it is, the fuller it is, then you may encounter just one tiny element of it in a split-second encounter, but, it would, but that split-second encounter would be so powerful and, and, and so, so overwhelming that that tiny little sliver of that personality would be so gripping and so huge that you would think that this person is like this all the time. However, it may be, in essence, in actuality, it may be a very shadowy reflection of one part of that personality, and the greater the personality, the richer the personality, the truer I think that may be. The more, the more forceful and overwhelming the personality, the truer that may be. So I, I want to just give you several insights into the private Jesus. What would some of these people who saw Jesus up close and personal have said to us? If we asked them, what is Jesus like? Well, we know one thing that they would have said is that Jesus had a scarcity of time alone. We, we see constantly, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus was pressed for private time. He couldn't, even, he couldn't even get a private meal in oftentimes. Let me show you a fascinating verse of Scripture. It, it, it's one of the only times in the Bible, by the way, when this one particular word is used. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 and 31. This is what it says. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And that's very interesting. It's, it's, it's not frequent at all that you'll see the word leisure in scripture anywhere. But Jesus, first of all, it tells us that Jesus had a need for leisure time. You know, some of us. There any, any workaholics in here? Yeah, one. <laughs> the problem is with, with the workaholics is that they don't know it and they won't admit it. Uh, but, but here's the thing. It, it is not a sin to get rest. It's not a sin. You know, you need that. Jesus needed that. And so he had a need for leisure time, just to, kind of a, some time to just sort of uh, cool his engines, to get alone. He, he had a need to find time for fellowship. He to share a meal with his disciples, to eat without being hurried by 
you know, somebody standing in the window saying, hurry, 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 eat, eat, eat. My grandmother is, is dying and I need you to come to my house. And this constant pressure, uh, one can only imagine what his life must have been like. We, we can only begin to imagine the stress and the demands that were on his time. So uh, 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 now then, now, but during those times, because he did get away, there were times in these private moments, these individual moments, uh, during those times when he was alone with friends, what was he like? We talked last week about his public ministry and what we learned from that, but what was he like one-on-one? Just his, who was he? What was he like? Well, look at, we're in, we already looked at chapter six. Stay right there in that chapter and look at verses seven through 11. This is what it says. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money for their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you, uh, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against, against them. Now, if at that moment, after he gave that command, if you had interviewed the disciples and asked, what is, what is Jesus like on an immediate basis, on up close and personal? Well, they might have said something like, well, he is a person of tremendous force. He, he speaks with authority. And he expects to be obeyed. I mean, I mean, please note the verb in, in verse 8. He says, uh, the version I read, English Standard Version, it says he charged them. It's also translated in other places, he commanded them. So it's a, it's, it's a very authoritative word. You know, he wasn't just saying, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you try this? He was telling them, this is what you're going to do. And he gave them this command. Furthermore, I mean, they might have said that he was a person of tremendous force, but they also might have said, well, you know, listen, he has very high expectations of those that are around him. I mean, look at the things that he said. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics, not to wear, not to take an extra coat or an extra, extra cloak. And, and they might have, in response to that, if you'd asked them, they might have said, well, you know, he really just doesn't know his limitations. I mean, he, he travels around like he's poverty stricken all the time. I mean, he, did, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. And he expects everybody else around him to live like that. However, the flip side or the, uh, another way of looking at what he said, they, they also might have said he is inspirational. Because he has high expectations of our ability to do ministry in the kingdom. He has high expectations, expectations. He believes that we're going to make a difference. He's so inspirational. And I heard my phone whistles. Uh, I usually don't have it with me, but I got to make sure I turn this off because I've got at least two people in the sanctuary right now that if they realize my phone is in my pocket, it's going to be calling me and it's going to be ringing just to embarrass me. So there, that's done. I ruined your, your joke. Okay, now let's move on. This second, chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Some of them, I can see the disappointment on their faces. They're, they're thinking, oh man, I was going to get him. All right, Mark 6, 45 through 52. Immediately, there, there's Mark's word again. 
He, he, that, that word shows up over and over again immediately. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He, he meant to pass by them. Now, this, to me, this is actually a very, very funny verse. If you, could, if you can think of it that way. I mean, we don't often think of the miracles of Jesus as humorous. But if you, if you can imagine this, they, they leave Jesus on the, on the one side of the Sea of Tiberias praying. And, and they go out and get in a boat. And then they, they can't even, the wind is blowing so hard, they can't even tack against the wind. So they, they're, they're, they lower the sail and they're, they're rowing a, a, across the lake against the wind. They're laboring in the wind, and, and Jesus, he walks on the water, not to the boat, but, but he's just going to walk across. He's, he's going past the boat, walking on the water. You know, I mean, this is funny to me that he's like, oh, well, I didn't see you fellows there. You know, that he's just I, just, I just think he did that with a twinkle in his eye, in, in me. That's just me. But anyway, he meant to pass by them, but, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for, for they all saw him and were terrified. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, you're, you're rowing as hard as you can out in the middle of this huge, big, huge lake, and a ghost comes walking past you at a fairly, uh, a fairly good clip. That might send, set off a couple of alarm bells. So that's, I can understand them. But then it, it, he goes on, he says, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I, don't be, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And that, he, this was right after he, he, he fed uh, thousands of people. That's what he's talking about, that they did not understand the loaves. Now, now there's, there's several things in, in, the, in this passage to reveal to us something about the personality of Jesus up close and personal. First of all, uh, the first thing, and I think is obvious, and I think we all know this, this is not rocket science, this is not a new revelation for you at all, but the first thing is that Jesus modeled a life of private prayer. He modeled a life of private prayer. I, and listen, I believe in corporate prayer, I believe in group prayer, I, 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 love, it, I love it when we get together with the people of the body of Christ and we're crying out to God together, there's something powerful, something uh, uh, amazing about that moment. I love that. But, but I also want to say this. I, I'm coming to believe this more and more and more in my life, but you will never have a great prayer life unless you learn to pray alone. If you're reliant on being inspired and praying because you're in a group and you feel, you know, the emotion of the moment, you're never going to have a great prayer life until you learn to pray alone. There's a part of prayer that is missing Unless you're willing to forsake human fellowship, even fellowship in prayer, and embrace some time alone with God. And by the way, can I say this? That time alone with God, it doesn't mean, in, in fact, you're, I don't think you really understand prayer if you do it this way, but it doesn't mean that you're constantly in your time alone with God having to fill that time with words and speaking the whole time you're alone with Him. Because prayer is communication and, and uh, how many of you in your marriage would say that there is good communication if your spouse constantly talks to you and never takes time to listen? 
Some of you are like, hey, hey that is my life right now. Uh, but I'm not going to we'll talk about marriage counseling another time. But, but, uh, but listen, you know, I mean, you, if you don't t- take time to be quiet, to listen, I mean, having the word with you during your prayer time is huge because sometimes he might direct you to a passage or sometimes in your regularly, uh, you know, your scheduled reading or the, whatever you're doing, there might be something there that all of a sudden you, re- you realize, man, he wants to talk to me about this. So, so uh, y- y- we have to embrace that time alone, but this, that also means listening. I want to just throw that in there. But, but we see in Jesus that he was willing to be alone with God, away from his friends. In fact, he, wasn't, he was more than willing. That was something he needed. That's something that he, he relied upon. And, and I just think about this. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed that time alone with, with the Father, how much more do I? How much more do I? We also see in the story, I, I think, uh, I kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I, th- I think we see just a, a wee bit of, uh, of odd humor um, it, it, this is this is a funny little joke for God to like play on people. I think. I mean, think Jesus could do anything, right? I mean, if he could walk on the water, he could just transpose himself to the other side of the lake, couldn't he? He could just say, "I'm gone from here," and just show up there and be there waiting for them when they arrive at Bethsaida in the boat. I mean, he could have flown over there. I mean, who's to say what he could or couldn't do? But he, whatever he wanted to do, I believe he could have done that. Nevertheless. He instead decided to walk out across the the lake right beside the boat. He saw them out there, and he's walking on the water. He knows that they're struggling to get across the lake. He sent them. He didn't tell them, go out and wait for me, or I'll signal you to come get me. He said he sent them on ahead to Bethsaida. So they're supposed to be getting to the place, and he's basically saying, I'll meet you there. And so he's... He just walks out right beside the boat. And and I don't know, this is just me. This is not in scripture and you can take this for what it's worth. But I think, I think maybe that as he started out there, he just sort of said to the, to the angels that were accompanying him, that he said, Hey, watch this. This is going to be really funny. Watch this. This is going to be great. You got to watch this. And, and indeed you can just, you can just see the scene. And because the, the passage is actually a little bit understated, but it says, that they supposed that he was a ghost and they were terrified. I mean, anybody here, you like to scare the people you love? Anybody like to jump out around a corner? It is so much fun. I mean, my girls and my wife do not think it's hilarious, but I just mark that up to a lack of sense of humor on their part because I find it hysterical. And, uh, and, and it, I think it probably they don't like it because I'm not very jumpy. And so they'll jump out to try to scare me. And even when they startle me, I'm on the outside. I just don't jump. And so they're, they're all disappointed. But, but I get great reactions from them. And I just, you know, to me, it's almost like Jesus is, is pulling one of these on his disciples. You know what I'm saying? It's like, he's like, hey, watch this. This is going to be hilarious. This is going to scare the, the, the liver out of these guys. And so he starts walking out. And, and, uh, and they're, they're just, you know, screaming. They fall down. The, the image is that they fall down into the deck of the boat and they're just screaming, it's a ghost! It's a ghost! It's a ghost! They're all just screaming and yelling. And, and Jesus is like, hey, just lighten up, fellas. I mean, it's just me. You know, and take heart. It's all right. Calm down. You're not, you're not, you're not about to be, you know, taken by a ghost or something. Well, you know, I like that side of Jesus. I like to think about, I mean... 
I don't think that humans have a sense of humor and God doesn't. You know, I mean, uh, I, I think he does. And I, I think there have been many times in my life that I just, I just know there have been times, and I just, I mean, I don't know, but I know, you know what I'm saying, that there have been times in my life when I just feel certain that the father called the angels over and said, hey, come here and watch this, watch this idiot. You, wait till you see this. I just, I just convinced of that. I like that side of it. But you know, maybe that speaks of the way that Jesus handles the supernatural world. I think that we in this modern, secularized, rationalistic society in which we live, we, we have an abnormal obsession with and an abnormal fear of the supernatural dimension. Isn't that true? I mean, you look at so many of the movies, a lot of the entertainment, uh, a lot of the TV shows that are out there, there's this, there's this abnormal obsession with the supernatural world. What's funny to me is that, is that they want to talk about, well, this house is really haunted. This is real. And you say, well, I want to talk to you about God. About God. What, a, what a fantasy that is. You know, they, they want the supernatural world. They just don't want God in it. But, but, but I think Jesus, you know, if it had been a ghost, I think Jesus might, might have said, well, what if it is a ghost? I mean, my, my goodness, everything's going to be okay here. Everything's fine. I'm here. You don't have to worry. You know, just play, plead the blood of Jesus. Tell him to get out, get out of here and go to sleep. But, uh, you know, Jesus was just not rattled by things like that. I mean, you look at every time he had an encounter with a demon-possessed person. That would freak most people out, don't you think? You know, they, they, this demon-possessed person would come up and say, who are, I know who you are. You're Jesus, the Son of God. Have you come to torture us? Have you come to before our time? All this kind of stuff. Most people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is like, hey, shut up. You, you don't talk. You get out of here and don't come back. You know, he, he just wasn't rattled with these, these kind of things. And I think it's we, we're the ones who always get in an uproar over things. We struggle and over the meaning of things and we fall down into the bottom of the boat and we're screaming and Jesus all the while saying, hey, just t take heart. It's, it's just me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this in a way that you hadn't expected. Just relax. I, I'm, you know, we're, we're going to get to the other side, but it's not going to happen the way you thought. Just relax. And you know, I experience that over and over and over again when I encounter the immediate Jesus. You know, those moments where, where Jesus speaks to me and he says, Dave, why are you all rattled over here on, on this? Why, why, are you, why are you so afraid? Why, why do I have to do this the way that I did it last time? Take heart. I'm with you. All right. The next one is in chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. Now they, that's the disciples, they had forgotten, this was another one that's funny to me, they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. <laughs> this, is, this is another one that I find a very humorous passage. I just think it's so funny. And now I do, I'll admit, I do have a bit of a warped sense of humor, so you may not find humor in it, but this is, to me, this is uproariously funny. All right, so, so now the, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, they had only had one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> this is funny to me. Jesus is like, <laughs> this is funny. He, he's not concerned with bread. 
You know, they, they're the only ones concerned with their bellies. Jesus is trying to teach them about the leaven of sin and the deceit, uh, deceit of outward religious pretense, but they, they just can't get it. They, they, they think he's scolding them because they forgot the bread. That's what's going on here. Uh, uh, verse 37, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, now listen, listen to the tone of his voice. I, I, don't, I don't want to impose on this, but listen to it. He, he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He's like, what's, what's the matter with you? What do you? Why are you talking about bread? I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about leaven. He said, do, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven uh, for the 4,000, how, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, this is funny to me. It's just the, the more I read the Gospels of Gospel of Mark, this is so like Jesus. Because in the first place, I find that Jesus was, was often extremely frustrated when he was trying to deal with people on supernatural issues and they keep getting snagged up on things that are inconsequential and, and irrelevant. You can almost hear the tone of rebuke in his voice. What's the matter with you? arguing about bread are, are you blind and deaf isn't that what he said he said do you have eyes and not see do you have ears and not hear so so you have to kind of listen to what he says and 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 you see this a lot of times in the gospels where the disciples will ask something or say something and jesus will say something else to them but and we know what he's talking about because we have this benefit of hindsight but if you were there i think a lot of times you would walk away saying do you know what he just said what does that mean? And they're like, I don't know, but I'm not asking, <laughs> you know, but because uh, I mean, he, he just listened to what he says. What's the matter with you? Are you guys deaf, blind, dumb and blind? I'm, I'm not talking about bread here. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. So, you know, if you ask these guys now at the end of this conversation, what was Jesus like up close and personal? <laughs> they, they might say something like, hey, if you don't want to know the answer, don't ask him. Yeah, he, he can be sharp. He'll let you have it. I mean, they might say sometimes he'll rebuke you in a New York minute. On the other hand, lest we be too harsh with the disciples, I want you to see this. This is something what I was just referring to. Jesus has this odd manner of communication. We, we have to understand, I think, the difficulties the disciples were experiencing. Because we read them and like, man, why, did the, why didn't these guys get this? Well, I don't think we would have got it either because you'll see what I mean. Uh, here, here you have this, this generation of people who are struggling to understand the God-man. They're, they're just struggling to understand the incarnation. Now, with hindsight, that we at least, we, we understand that. We understand it. However, turn it the other way around. Put yourself in their sandals for a minute. Here's somebody who has stepped out of heaven the pre-existent, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity who has clothed himself in flesh and he's trying to communicate with, with fleshly people at their level. And it's just agonizing at times for Jesus. He, he says things that to him seem perfectly clear. But the problem is, it's like I heard a sermon one time 
the, the start off, they ask, what language does God speak? Anybody have any idea what language God speaks? Somebody said all of them? Hebrew, somebody says Hebrew. Well, here's the problem. God speaks God. God speaks God. And then when we're trying to listen to him, we don't understand when God speaks God. This is what happened to the disciples all the time. This is what happened with Jesus. I mean, here, I mean, he says to them, you're arguing about this bread. What's the matter with you? And here's his explanation. He said, don't you remember when I fed the 5,000? How many basketfuls did you take up afterwards? They said 12. And, and when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets did we take up? They said seven, Lord. He said, well, there you go. And, you know, I just think I just think they're looking at each other and they're saying, yeah, that's clear to me. Yeah, that, that, I've got it. I'm not sure about Peter, but I've got it. I'm sure I've got that because they're just completely bamboozled because because, you know, he doesn't ever just come out and try to explain it. I mean, to Jesus, however, it's perfectly clear. He's saying, what, what's the matter with you? Why are you arguing over these things? Do you understand what I'm talking about? See, because Jesus, to Jesus, he had already said it. And, and, and I want you to notice, because he didn't, just, he didn't just say, well, you don't have to worry about bread because I, you know, I mean, you just saw me feed thousands of people. You don't have to worry about bread. That's not really his point there. Because he asked them, how many basketfuls? And, and, and Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the bread of life. I've already said this. I'm the bread of life. I'm the fulfillment of of all the house of Israel. That's why there are 12 baskets. I am the sevenfold perfection of God. That's why there were seven baskets. He's saying this is, there's more than just the extra bread there. There's something, there's a message there I'm trying to communicate to you. I'm more than you could ever desire. I am the providence of God. I, I can multiply and add and subtract and divide. I can walk on, on water. I am God. But, but he said, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? Twelve. When I fed the 4,000, how many baskets were left over? Seven. And he's like, well, there you go. He's like, what's the matter with you? And you, you, you can see what's happening here, and it happens all, a lot. And you'll, you'll begin to see, if you pay attention, you'll see it in a lot of places in the gospel. What's happened is that, happening is that they're communicating across a cultural and linguistic gap that's as high as from heaven to earth. Because Jesus sees things clearly, but how do you communicate these clear, powerful spiritual truths to minds that have been corrupted by sin? So, it's just precious to me to see that, you know, when I struggle to try to communicate what I'm trying to say to people, you know, it's just precious to me to see that aspect of Jesus that there were times when he just labored almost to find a way to, to communicate these things to people who were struggling to understand heaven. All right, let's go to the next one. Chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now this is a, a very private, up-close, intimate conversation about who Jesus is. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man 
must suffer many things and he reject and be rejected by the elders and the and the chief priests chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again and he said this plainly now that's an interesting thing right there i'm not going to spend time on that bit but it's not as if when jesus talked about his death resurrection that that it was a mystery he said to this, them plainly this is what's going to happen and peter <laughs> i love peter peter gives me so much hope for myself peter took him aside he took Jesus, the Son of God, aside to rebuke him. Peter is rebuking Jesus. He's saying, now, now Jesus, we're not going to have any of that kind of conversation around here. I rebuke that Jesus, talking about all that death and destruction and being betrayed. Don't say those kinds of things. You, can you imagine the presumption of that moment of uh, this Peter, this flamboyant, boisterous, Fishermen rebuking Jesus. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, you rebuke me? I'm going to rebuke you, buddy. And he said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you, know, you know, that pretty much ends the argument right there, doesn't it? You know, if somebody says, get behind me, Satan, it's over. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, Peter, you're... You're rolling around the things of the flesh on your tongue and, and you're all about comfort and avoiding pain. But I'm all about the things of God and the things of God embrace the cross. Satan. <laughs> now, now suppose after that encounter that we interviewed Peter and said, what's Jesus like in private? <laughs> he would probably say, oh, Ooh, serious. I'm telling you, there's not a whole lot of latitude with this bloke. I mean, all I can say is guard your tongue. So you, you see that if you talk to different people at different points on the continuum, they're, they're going to say Jesus is like this in private. And somebody else, Jesus is like this in private. No, Jesus is like this in private. Well, de depending on who you interview and the encounter that they just had with Jesus, he, he's going to look like a person with about 12 different personalities. We, we see his humanity. We see his emotion. And, and yet we see that he's not swayed or controlled by his emotion. You, you, if you look at his, uh, uh, you'll, you'll see his unwillingness to be caught up in situations where other people are applying subtle pressure to him. Like Peter in this passage. I mean, that was subtle pressure because G Peter didn't want to, you know, in defense of Peter, he, was, he didn't want to think about Jesus dying. I mean, it was painful for him. So that's, it really wasn't about Jesus. It was more about Peter when he pulled him aside. You don't, don't talk like that, Jesus. And, and, but that's a subtle pressure that the enemy in, is really using Peter to try to tell Jesus, uh, you, you know, maybe you don't need to go that route. And, or, or his family, you know, when they, when they said to him, your family is outside. His family is there because they thought they lost his mind. You can read that in another place. Uh, and so there's this emotionally charged situation there. And Jesus, you know, looks at him and said, my family. He said, here's my mother and my brother and my sisters. I mean, everybody that does the will of God. That's my family. Well, that's a very hard statement for his physical family. But it's a very good thing for us in this place, isn't it? I'd like to show you just a couple others. Chapter 10, verses 17 through, through 45. Now I'm gonna, it's a lot of, that's a long story. I'm not going to read all of it for the sake of time. But Mark 10, 17 through 45 is the story of the rich young ruler. So look at verse 21. I want you to, to, to see this first of all. It says, Jesus, looking at him, looking at the rich young man, 
loved him. He loved him. So what do we learn about Jesus? We learn that Jesus was able to see through an arrogant, self-righteous, self-centered, materialistic exterior to see a person of great value. Jesus loved him. Again in verse 23 of chapter 10. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now that was, that was shocking to the disciples because Jewish theology at the time, if you were wealthy, that was a sign of God's favor. And so when Jesus said, you know, it's going to be really hard for, for rich people to get into heaven, the disciples, you remember they said, well, then who can get in? Because in their mind, that's supposed to be a sign of the favor of God. And if they're going to have a hard time, what are, what are we poor fishermen going to do when it comes time to get into heaven? But, but, but what we see is that Jesus uh, in private constantly betrayed this odd perspective on the world, on, on, on the world and on life and on multiple dimensions of life. He just simply didn't see things the way other people saw them, which which made him in private a constantly challenging personality who was never willing to play the game. In, in chapter 13, we see uh, the long Olivet Discourse. I, I don't want to be concerned with the eschatological concerns of his teaching about the end times because he talks a lot about the end times there. But what we're concerned with tonight is the man here, the private man, Jesus. So look at verse 23, Mark 12, excuse me, Mark 13. But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. Then verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then verses 35 through 37. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake, which is hard to do on Wednesday night after we have our meal across the street. <laughs> I'm going to start quoting this verse every Wednesday. That's what I'm going to do. Um, but, but in these verses, what you, can't, you, you catch in Jesus' personality, this, this intensity, the, this urgency that he had for what he was doing, uh, you get a sense of that. And one gets a sense of that, that what he was doing and what he was teaching was vitally important, and he wanted it burned into people's minds, you can see that he was just consumed with his mission. So you, you catch that in that. Now turn to chapter 14. Uh, we find some unusual things in chapter 14, particularly the story of Jesus being anointed by Mary of Bethany. And we find in this, in this story, uh, first of all, we find his, his unashamed acceptance of spontaneous worship. That's amazing. You know, people that say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, first of all, if he was a good Jewish man and, and uh, didn't think of himself as God, when, when somebody offered worship to him, he would be horrified. But he, was, he unashamedly accepted that worship. Jesus was not embarrassed at all. He affirmed her personally, perceiving that her heart was clean. Furthermore, he, he refused to be distracted with emotionally intimidating language. We see this all the time. We see it, you see it a lot in politics today in our nation. People will, will load the argument with emotionally charged statements that have nothing to do with the, with the real issue of what's going on. Look at verse 4. You'll see what I'm talking about. 
There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. I, I tell you, this is such a beautiful insight into the private Jesus that Jesus was not concerned with doing right things. He was concerned with doing things right. It wasn't for him. He was not concerned with the outward appearance that would fit into little tiny minds who could load up with emotional language. Have you ever known people that, that can just load up with emotional language to try to muddy the situation, make it hard to deal with? Because they say it in such a way that it's like, how can you disagree with that? It just sounds right. They said she shouldn't have wasted all this ointment. It could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. We could have fed hungry people with this. Jesus said, your hearts are not right and hers is. You're about an outward legalistic observance. She's about a spontaneous moment of worship and I affirm her. What, what a beautiful insight into the private Jesus that, that Jesus was able to discern what was really going on inside of people that were around him. In the, in the garden then, on the Mount of Olives, he, he's able to show his emotions in verses 33 and 34 of this same chapter. I just want to show you this and then we'll close after this. Mark 14, 33 and 34. And he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So you remember they went to the garden, they told the disciples, most of the disciples, he said, stay here and pray. Then he took Peter, James and John, go went a little bit further. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. We see that Jesus was not afraid to reveal his true emotional state in private with his friends. He didn't try to fake it. He, he's, he's not fooled by people playing games and he's not playing games with anybody else. When the disciples are falling in the bottom of the boat screaming, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. He says, get up and take heart. When, when they're arguing amongst themselves over inconsequential and irrelevant, irrelevant issues, like, like who forgot the bread, Jesus says, don't you understand? I'm talking about the kingdom here. When, when somebody comes to him who's draping himself in self-righteousness saying, I've obeyed the, the whole law since my childhood, Jesus loves the person. Jesus loved him. And when Jesus himself is facing the worst trial of his entire life and is distressed and troubled and sorrowful in, in, in unguarded uh, intimacy with his closest and deepest friends, he says, I'm lonely and I'm afraid and I'm depressed. And I say that because the, the word that, that's, that's translated uh, troubled actually means pushed down, a weight upon. So it's what he's saying. And he said, I wish he says to them, I wish you would stay awake and pray. He says, if you can't pray with me, can you at least be with me? The more I read about Jesus, the more I love him. The more I discover who Jesus is immediately, up close and personal, the more I want to be with him. I tell you, you know, the world is full of dwarfs and phonies. And Jesus is a giant, altogether real, totally in control of himself and yet sensitive to the needs of others. 
When you fall, when I, when I want to fall on my face and worship at his feet, he affirms me. When I ask stupid questions, anybody here ever ask stupid questions? All right, it's good to know. When I ask stupid questions, he rebukes me, but, but not too harshly. Not so much that, I, that he crushes my spirit. When I come to him with my needs, when I come to him with my fears, when I'm worried about situations, he says to me, I understand. I get it. I was in the Garden of Gethsemane myself once. Oh, how I love this Jesus. Would you bow your head? Let's, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the picture of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. And, and Lord, as we look at him personally, in private, Lord, we see that there are many facets to, facets to him, Lord God. And each one speaks to us in different ways. And, and God, you know where we are. You know what we're dealing with. And if there's those here that are facing things that are causing fear and anxiety or they're hurting or they're depressed or whatever it may be, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them tonight and just say, I, 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 don't be afraid to open yourself up to me because I've been there. I was, I was in the garden. And Lord, I pray that, that we would just be encouraged by you, that we would learn to hear your voice clearly and that in those moments, Lord God, where we need to be rebuked, Lord, we ask you to rebuke us. In those moments where we need the encouragement, we know from your word that you're, that's who you are. You're an encourager. In those moments when we're just afraid or we're hurting, we're frightened, we're frightened, you say, take heart, it's me, I'm right here. I'm at work, even when you can't see me. And Lord, I pray that in all those things that we would just be, we would fall so deeply in love with you, Jesus, that we would just be ready to draw near, that we'd get as close as we can to this personal, intimate person of Jesus that who's our best friend who loves us more than we could ever imagine and we give you thanks for all of it in the strong name of Jesus amen